Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Last Lord's Day, we began a summer series of sermons through the book of Titus. And this morning, we come to the middle of chapter 1. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. This is God's word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is transformative. Please give it your full attention. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may, might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There has been a deeply disturbing trend in evangelical churches over the last 25 years or so. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there has certainly been a dramatic increase in public scandals among pastors and other ministry leaders. There's certainly been true among what we would call celebrity pastors, ones that we know from the internet or radio, TV, Men like Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, Ted Haggard, Bill Gothard. The list could go on and on of famous preachers, teachers, ministry leaders who have been brought down through scandal or abuse. But the thing that's even more troubling, I think, has been the increasing reports of the same kinds of downfall among what we would call ordinary garden variety pastors in churches all over the country, as evidenced by the recent shocking report of abuse cases and the cover-up of abuse cases in the Southern Baptist Convention. But I want you to know it's not just out there. It's not just in other kinds of churches. I've been... For 10 years, I've been part of the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery, which is made up of about 18 churches. And in those 18 churches, we've had four men who have been disciplined and removed from ministry because of scandal or abuse in those 10 years. What's going on? You can't help but ask the question, what is going on? It seems to be getting worse. Well, I'll give you one reason that's obvious from Scripture. It's a satanic attack upon the church. Anybody who's ever been in the military or studied the military knows that the most effective way to send an army into disarray and chaos is to take out the leaders. And Satan is certainly attacking the church, and he's doing so by temptation, appealing to their weakest points, bringing them down. 
But looking at it on a horizontal level among us in the church, what is causing this? What is the reason? I think one of the most significant reasons is a lack of accountability for our leaders. I read an article in Christianity Today that was written by a person who helps churches when they're in leadership crisis. This is what this person wrote. They said, we can and must do more to expose sin within the leadership when it happens. We must fight to prevent it from taking root, but, I'm sorry, we must, we must, uh, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> let me, I'm skipping a line here. We can and do more, must do more than expose sin within the leadership when it happens. We must fight to prevent it from taking root in the first place. More often than not, organizations are catapulted into crisis almost solely because they had little to no accountability procedures in place to prevent abuses of power. That certainly has been true in terms of the quote-unquote celebrity pastors that we've heard about and read about. Many of them either had no accountability whatsoever, they were accountable to themselves only, or they had appointed friends and family members to be on their boards, or they, those that were genuinely assigned to hold them accountable just refused to do so because of their fame and power. But we need to be accountable at all levels of the church. There's good news about the problems we've had in our own presbytery among these churches in our region that I talked about. We did discipline and remove these four men who should not have been in positions of leadership. So there was ultimate accountability, but I know many of us have asked the question, could more have been done proactively to hold them accountable before they fell? As we saw last week, as we began our study of the book of Titus, Titus was a young and capable leader who was sent by the Apostle Paul to the island nation of Crete in the Mediterranean island, to do as what he says in verse 5, you notice why the, and we began the passage, this was Titus, might elders in every town. You see, Paul, at some point in Paul's travels, he and Titus had been at Crete and they had preached the gospel, brought the gospel to that pagan, dark, spiritual land and had led many people to the Lord. And so house churches would have formed, but Paul had to leave. He had to move on to other churches to minister to. And so what he says here is he, the reason why he left Titus there, one of his most trusted associates, was so that he could put what remained into order. In other words, to build a foundation, to build a structure, to, to provide what is needed for those churches to be sustained and to thrive in such a difficult cultural environment. And we see here that the very first step that Titus had to take was to find and establish leaders for these churches. At this point, I want to tell most of you in the room who are never going to be elders in the church, please don't check out here. I'm not only preaching to the small handful of men who are elders or who may be elders. If you haven't already gotten the point, the point is that you are the ones who must hold them accountable. Every member of the church needs to know what a good leader looks like and hold your leaders accountable to that standard. This letter, we'll see as we continue to study it this summer, we're going to see that Paul intended this letter to not only be read and studied by Titus, his associate, but it was to be read to, the whole church, to all the churches. 
because the churches needed to know what good leadership looked like for the sake of accountability. Men become leaders, the way the process works. Men become elders in the church. They become leaders because the congregation, you, the members of the church, recognize that the calling of Christ is upon them. Christ is the one who calls leaders to lead his church, but he does it by giving them gifts, giving them uh, a, a calling, and giving them the experience to lead in the church. And you are the ones who recognize that and you vote for them saying, I believe that Christ has called these elders to lead the church. That's where your accountability begins. But once they are in office, it's your responsibility to make sure that they continue to meet these qualifications that Paul gives. It's your job. If there's a lack of accountability in this church, it's because you're not doing your job to hold your leaders accountable. We're going to see in next week's passage, as we move on from verse 10 to 17, that one of the biggest problems that these young, immature, growing Christians in these undeveloped churches, one of the biggest challenges they're facing is they were surrounded by false teachers and false teaching. And so they were, that was an incredible threat to a church that's not yet firmly established. So Paul says, not only Titus must you appoint elders, but you must train the people to understand what to look for in their leaders. Preachers use this illustration all the time, but it's only because it's very effective in communicating this kind of truth. If you were to train to be a bank teller and they want you to be able to learn how to identify counterfeit money, they don't start by showing you what, and have you enter, have the experience with what counterfeit, counterfeit money looks like and what it is like. What they do is they have you get really familiar with real currency, real money, so that when the fake stuff comes by you, it's easier to recognize. It's the same lesson what Paul's doing here. He wants the members of the church to understand what good leadership looks like from God's perspective so that when the false teachers come with their false teaching, they can be easily identified. So what does a godly leader look like? Well, Paul lays it out here. And what he says here about elders is true for leaders in general. Elders are the highest calling among leaders in the church. They are to be the models of leadership for the church. And so if you lead in any other way, if you lead a Bible study, if you lead a Sunday school class, if you're a mentor to some other Christian, if you lead your family, in whatever way you lead, here is the gold standard. Here is what God defines as good leadership. And so anybody who leads in any way, and most of you lead in some way, can learn from this example that Paul lays before us. You know, matter of fact, the, the world, earlier in our country's history, the world would look to the church to find out what a good leader looked like. Matter of fact, the world would go to the church to get good leaders because they knew the church was producing them. Now, unfortunately, things have degenerated to the point where the church looks to the world to see what a good leader looks like. And too many leaders in churches look good to, by the world standards but look terrible by God's standards. How often do churches put people that are attractive, charismatic, excellent speakers, have a strong entrepreneurial spirit about them, and yet they don't have the qualifications that Paul defines here. Don't look to the world to tell you what a good leader looks like. Look to the Word of God. Also, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, 
and I'm going to put on my strong Presbyterian hat here and teach a little Presbyterian theology, I want you to notice that Paul refers to these leaders as elders. In the original Greek of the New Testament, the word is presbyter. That's where we get Presbyterian from. Presbyterian means that the church is ruled by elders. And so the word in verse 5 is elders or presbyter. But in verse 7, he calls the same group of men that he's talking about overseers. In verse 7, overseers. In the Greek, it's episkopos, which you'll probably recognize from the word episcopal, which is actually another word for that in English is bishop. So I just want you to notice that elders, presbyters, and episkopos, or bishops, are the same men. They're the same group of men. They're not two different offices. They're two different labels given to the same group. We call that the parity of elders. There is no hierarchy of elders. I am not the leader of this church. No other pastor on staff is the leader of the church. The elders lead the church. And that's the second point. It's a group of elders, not a single elder. We talk about parity of elders, but we talk about the plurality of elders. In every town, Paul says, in every town appoint elders. Every house church should have elders governing it. Not a single elder, but a group of elders governing it. I want you also to notice one other thing before we dig into the qualifications themselves. Paul says in verse 6, if anyone is these things, if anyone. What he's implying there is if you go to a house church, Titus, and none of the men fit these qualifications, then don't appoint elders. Yes, it's not good. It's a bad thing for a church, a house church or any other size of church to not have elders, but it's worse to have bad elders. And I'll tell you right now, as I've been around the church a long time, the biggest mistake that churches make is putting men into positions of leadership and authority who have no business being there, who are not qualified for the office of elder. It's the biggest mistake, most destructive mistake that a church can make. And so Paul says, if there are qualified men there, then appoint them as elders. So let's dig in then. What are the characteristics? And it's a long list, and I know that's kind of intimidating. You're preparing yourself for an hour-long sermon. I promise not to do that. I'm going to group these characteristics into three basic areas. You need to examine those who lead you and those who are candidates to lead you. You need to examine them in three different areas, as Paul lays it out here. The first area is his family life. Donald Guthrie has written, the home is regarded as the training ground for Christian leaders. It starts there. And so Paul says here, you need to look at the man's marriage first of all. He says, is he the husband of one wife? Literally, in the original language, is, is he a one-woman man? I know that sounds like a bad country song, but that's literally what it says. Is he a one-woman man? That phrase has actually confused the church. The church has had trouble interpreting that in the past. Some people would think, well, obviously, he's just in, in that culture, they had, polygamy was an issue. And so he's saying, you must not be a polygamist. You must not have many wives. You should only have one wife. You should not only not have multiple wives. Some people think that it means that a man must be married. And it doesn't mean that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. What the phrase is not really even talking about how many wives. It's not the quantity he's talking about. It's the quality of the relationship with your wife that he's referring to. He's pointing to faithfulness in marriage. 
If a man will not be faithful to his wife, then he's not going to be faithful to the church. How can a man love the church well, the bride of Christ, if he does not love his own bride well? It begins there. If he's married, look at his marriage. Is he a good husband? Does he love his wife the way that Christ loved the church and laid down his life for it? Now, again, I don't believe that disqualifies single men from being elders and leaders in the church in that way. I don't think it disqualifies them. But if you're going to choose a leader and he's not married, realize that he's not been tested in that very important area of his life. So you better be especially sure that he, is, he meets his qualification of leadership. It begins by looking at his marriage. If he's not married, then you need to, to raise your level of assessment to a higher level because he hasn't been proven in marriage. The second area is his parenting. He says, Paul says, his children must be believers. Now again, this word believers has caused some consternation. And, and again, it's, in, it's translation, a translation issue. What's the right word to translate the original word in Greek? And the original word can either be translated believing, or it could be translated being faithful. Is Paul saying that the children of an elder must believe, or is he saying that children must be faithful? And by faithful, it just means faithful to the covenant community. Is he living a life consistent with a Christian family? Is he living under the authority of the father's leadership in the home? As much as we would like to, no parent can ensure that our children are going to be born again and believe, because that's not our job. It's above my pay grade anyway. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables our children to believe, and we pray and trust in him to do that. What Paul's talking about here is the rest of the parenting job in terms of disciplining, training, and being a good example to your children. Is he a good father? We know that, he mean, that Paul means faithful there because, again, it's always context. You always interpret a word by its context. And the rest of the verse makes it clear what he's referring to because he says that they, we must ensure his children are believers. And then he goes on to say, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The word debauchery, another word for that, actually a more literal word would be wild. That they are not wild children. And secondly, the idea of insubordination or rebellion, an open rebellion. So again, what I'm stressing here is not talking about does the elder candidate or does the elder have children who are just normal, defiant, rebellious, totally depraved children like all children are? It's not talking about the native state of the child. It's talking about how well the, the father parents. And sometimes, and you have to use some assessment, some judgment there sometimes because not all, I, I, a couple of my children were really easy. A couple of my children were really difficult. And so you measure, you know, hopefully allow that in your measurement to grade me on the curve for a couple of my kids, you know, because they were especially difficult. But it's just recognizing, does he, has he proven himself as a father in the household? We're not talking about normal childish misbehavior or defiance. We're talking about children that are incorrigible due to poor or ineffective parenting. And that's the issue. The book of 1 Samuel talks about the priest Eli, who had two incorrigible, rebellious sons. And it says that Eli was judged because of the behavior of his sons. And this is what God said. God said he, he was judging Eli because his sons were blaspheming God 
And he, Eli, did not restrain them. He was ineffective as a father. Yes, his sons bore their own judgment, but Eli also was removed because he was not a good father. Just like marriage, parenting is a testing ground for leaders. And children will test you. When I was first saved as a teenager, I had a real problem with my anger, temper. I couldn't control my temper. And once the Lord saved me and the Holy Spirit began to work on me over the next several years, I really grew a lot in controlling my anger. And then I got married. And I got tested at a whole deeper, much more comprehensive level as to whether I could control my temper or not. And the Lord worked on me, not very long, because children came along quickly. But for a while, I was getting better, getting better with my wife and controlling my temper. And then I started having children. And they are the most precious, valuable mechanisms of sanctification you'll ever find in your life. (laughs) And so that is how the Lord works, and that is why we need to take these factors into consideration when we say, is this man qualified to be an elder? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, he says, an elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It begins in the home, his family life. I want to add just one more side thought here, and this is certainly relevant to me and my wife. The word children here, usually in the New Testament, when that word is used for children, it's talking about minors, children who still live in the household. Because many men who serve very faithfully as elders, including me, I have one son who has turned his back on the Lord and walked away and does not live under the Lordship of Christ. He's an elder in the church and decided that no, because it's talking about your, it's really what Paul's talking about is managing your household and your children within your household. And you're not accountable when they leave your household. As grievous as, uh, as that whole situation is, I came to the conclusion that I could still serve and still meet the qualifications that Paul lays out here. Also want to just underline that this does not disqualify a single man from serving. It doesn't disqualify a married man who has no children or obviously a single man who has no children. But what Paul is trying to say here is that you need to look at a man's family life. If he has no family, then there's not a lot to look at there. In other words, these are testing grounds to see whether they really show these qualifications for leadership or not. So you examine his family life. Secondly, examine his character and his reputation. And you get this actually twice. Paul says this twice in both verses 6 and 7. He uses the same word. He says that an elder must be above reproach. Other translations use the word blameless there. Now obviously, and we'll say it very quickly, that doesn't mean that he's faultless. It doesn't mean he's perfect. Nobody is. What it means is that his reputation is to be Christ-like. He is seen by others over his track record over a long period of time is to be someone who pursues obedience to Christ, who follows Christ consistently. And when he falls, when he sins, he reveals the gospel of Christ by the way he confesses that sin and repents of that sin is he a godly man? Is that, is that his reputation? That's what it means to be above reproach. Or is his life known by some obvious or especially scandalous sin? 
Harry Reeder, in his book um, and in his teaching seminars on embers to a flame, he always points out that as you look at Paul's qualifications for elders and deacons, the officers of the church, as you look at the qualifications that he gives in, in uh, 1 Timothy and in Titus, there are basically you can kind of, ones that are similar words or synonyms, you put them together and basically there are 17 qualifications that he lists, words that he uses for qualifications. Of those 17 traits, character traits, or of those 17 traits, only two are skills, the rest of them are character traits. 15 out of 17 deal with the man's heart, his character. Only two of them deal with skill. We'll talk about both, we already already talked about one of them, managing, the ability to manage is a skill, and teaching is the other, and we'll get to that in a minute. But all the other 15 deal with his heart, his character. And that's why you must examine his character. I'm gonna list the traits that he gives here into four categories. Four categories of character traits. First of all, and it is hard to find leaders who aren't arrogant. Putting people in positions of authority makes them a, a, a focus of Satan's attack where he is gonna attack any vestige of arrogance that's there. He must not be arrogant. He must seek the glory of God and the good of the church before his own glory and his own good. He must exercise what Jesus taught as servant leadership, that he's an authority in order to serve, not to gain glory or to get his way. Authority is never given in the church. Christ never gives authority to anyone so that they can get their way, to get to do what they want to do with the church. Authority is a stewardship. Paul calls the elder God's steward here. A steward is somebody who manages something that belongs to his master for the sake of his master, for the good of his master, for the glory of his master. Elders are to be stewards of the church in the name of Christ. That authority is used for the good of the church, not their own good. The second character trait that, or category of character traits that Paul gives here is self-control. He actually uses the word in verse 8. It's a word that Paul uses often. It's a really important Christian characteristic, self-control. He uses a very similar word at at the end of verse 8, discipline. He must be self-controlled and disciplined, which are almost synonyms. In other words, this man must not be controlled by his own desires. He must not be controlled by his lusts. He must not be controlled by his appetites. He must not be addicted. As Paul says in Corinthians, he says, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Pornography, alcohol, drugs, television, anything. I will not be mastered. It's someone who is self-controlled, has put, by and large, again, not that this man never fails to do this, not that this man never sins, but that the character of his life is that he is self-controlled. This is particularly true, as Paul points out, in relation to money. Money is such a corrupting factor when it comes to leadership in the home and in the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If you see the love of money in one who is proposed to be a leader in the church or is a leader in the church, it must be addressed. Because Paul says in verse 7, he must not be greedy for gain. 
One of the earliest documents we have in the history of the church, we believe it's actually the earliest document we have from the early church, probably written at the end of the first century. It's called the Didache. And it was basically a, a, a document that was given for instruction in, in, the, in the first churches. And at one point it says, if a teacher comes to you from another town and he asks you for money, do not listen to him. How much would the church have been spared much grief and sorrow if they had applied what the Didache said back at the beginning? If somebody is in it for the money, do not listen to him. It's a sign of false teaching. It's that lack of self-control, that love of money that leads to the destruction of many ministries. One of the major tragedies of the witness of the church today is that, if you, you know it if you watch television, if you watch movies, pastors are always evil characters. Because this reception of the world is that every spiritual leader in the church is arrogant and greedy. And we've given them so much fodder for that perception, especially with the recent scandals. But Paul says here that an elder is to be hospitable. You know what the opposite of loving money is and being greedy? It's being hospitable. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we use that word hospitality, and usually we're talking about the hotel business or we're talking about having our friends over for coffee. But when the scriptures talk about hospitality, it's not talking about either one of those things. It's talking about being generous with your resources to reach, to reach out to those who are in need. I'm not necessarily being hospitable when I invite my friends over for barbecue and football. That's being a friend, but that's not being hospitable. Being hospitable is what those churches in Eastern Europe are doing right now where refugees, Christians, are fleeing Ukraine across the border into other countries, neighboring countries, and Christians in all of those cities are opening up their homes and opening up their storehouses to care for those refugees. That's hospitality. It's being generous with the resource. Yes, generous with your home, generous with your time, generous with your money, with those who are in need for the sake of the gospel. That's hospitality. The third category of characteristics of character traits that Paul gives, I'm labeling gentleness or meekness, the word meekness. Paul says he's not to be quick-tempered. He's not to be violent. If you go to the list that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3, he says there that he should exhibit gentleness and that he not be quarrelsome. What he's describing there, not quick-tempered, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, put it all together and you have what the Bible talks about as meekness. Jesus was meek. And we associate meekness with weakness. But meekness is strength under control. Strength submitted to God's will. And the point here, and this needs to be heard in the church today, now is more than ever, a leader in the church must never be a bully. And so many of the recent scandals have not been pastors stepping down because of some sexual sin, but so many of them have just been abusive leadership styles where they use intimidation to get their will done. Using verbal, physical, or emotional intimidation to bend others to your will is never good leadership, even though it might be effective in the eyes of the world. The fourth category that Paul gives is what I'm calling goodness. And there I'm putting together the traits that he talks about. He he says he must be upright, or righteous is another word for that. He must be righteous, upright, holy, and a lover of good. 
In other words, is this a really, by God's standards, by biblical standards, is this a good man? Does he love the good? Does he exhibit the good? Does he seek good among his brothers and sisters in Christ and his neighbors in the community? Does he pursue holiness? Does he pursue the holiness of God, the presence of God, and the righteousness of God? And this is where I can't hesitate to say what the scriptures say, is that those who lead in the church, elders particularly, as they lead in the church, are to be models of Christ-likeness. And Paul actually was willing, Paul was willing to say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said to the Christians, said, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. If your elders are not models of what the Christian life should look like, then they shouldn't be elders. Again, not perfect. But part of modeling the Christian life is recognizing, confessing your sin, and repenting of your sin. It's important that you preach and teach the gospel by the way that you do that in your own life as a leader. This brings me to the last area. The first two areas we talked about. His family life. Examine his family life. Has he been tested and proven able in his family life? Character. Paul has given us a list of character traits to look at, to examine his character, his godliness. The third area is his doctrine. Paul says at the end of this passage, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What's the trustworthy word that Titus was taught? It was the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles, which, we would, which soon would be called the New Testament. The revealed word of God, the inerrant, infallible word of God is revealed from God, given to us. That is what he's been taught. Hold firmly to it. Last but not least, hold firmly to the word of God. Paul calls this, when he talks to Timothy, he calls it the deposit that was entrusted to him. Twice, he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. The truth of God's word has been put in the hands of the elders of the church and they must know it and must hold firmly to it. Hold, know it and hold firmly. Elders in local churches, who would be pastors in local churches, who would be uh, leaders in, at a higher levels in our churches. It's because elders must know and hold firm to the truth. That's why we feel it's important to be in a confessional church. Because the creeds and the confessions have been handed down generation after generation, hundreds of years after hundreds of years, these creeds and confessions have been handed down, not as scripture, as Cam said earlier, but as reliable interpretations of scripture, time-tested, reliable interpretations of scripture. And we should measure our leaders by these creeds and confessions. In our churches, we use the Westminster Confession of Faith because it summarized the teachings of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. It was written in, 16, in the 1640s, and from 1640s on, it has been a tool used by the church to make sure that's what being preached and taught and those, that those who are preachers and teachers in the church hold to biblical interpretations of Scripture, the, the, the right sound doctrine of Scripture. Somebody said to me once, you know, we expect those who are surgeons, those who are doctors and surgeons, that they have been tested 
exhaustively to make sure that they know what we're doing. And we would never put ourselves under the knife of a surgeon who had not been tested and it knows what he's doing well and has been tested in his ability to do it well. It's the same way in the church in terms of the spiritual doctors of the church, those who are to preach and teach the word of God. Secondly, there's where we come to the second skill that an elder must have. He must be able to teach. Elders must have the gift of teaching and skill in teaching in order to do what Paul says here, to give instruction and in sound doctrine. Because it's not just enough to be a biblical scholar. I went to seminary with a number of men who wanted to be biblical scholars, but were not gifted to be elders or pastors, you know, elders, leaders in the church. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to study the word of God deeper. They wanted to know deeper. That's a great thing. But you must be able to teach it. You must be able to effectively communicate it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then finally, Paul says, elders must be able to defend the truth. He says, the last thing he says, they must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. We're going to see in the passage next week why this was so important in Crete. Because there were such prevalence of false teachers and false teaching. But it's true as much, I'm saying, more today. Because false teachers and false teaching have so many more ways to get into our homes and into our minds and into our lives Elders must be able to not only teach the truth, but defend it, defend it doggedly. God's word is always under attack by Satan. And the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, must be on guard constantly where Satan is attacking the authority of the word of God. These days, and I'll tell you right now, I am tired of talking about homosexuality. We didn't talk about it when I was a kid. It's like, I didn't even think about it when I was a kid. Now it's like, you can't get away from it. It's everywhere. I'm tired of talking about it, but I tell you, I'm going to continue to talk about it. I'm going to continue to talk about abortion. I'm going to continue to talk about gender and gender roles because that is where the world is attacking Scripture. Because ultimately, the issue is not those peripheral issues. The issue is, do you trust the Word of God or don't you? And it's an elder's job to defend the Word of God. And if that's where Satan's attacking, then we're going to double up our, our forces at that point of attack. That's what good elders do. Don't accept leaders in your church if you've examined their family life, their character, and their doctrine and find them wanting. But praise God, this church has good elders. I am deeply thankful for the elders that God has called to serve this church. The men I work with are high-quality men, and God has blessed the church because of it. You've done a good job. Keep up the good work. Because, as Harry Reader says, the spiritual maturity of a church will, spiritual maturity of a church will never rise higher than the level of its leadership. You set the ceiling for the spiritual maturity of our church by holding your leaders accountable to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for the way you've blessed us. Thank you for way from generation to generation, you've always provided leaders who stand for your word, who stand for the gospel, who represent Christ well. Lord, I thank you for the, the men that are elders and deacons here now. I thank you for those that you're preparing for that office. 
And Lord, I pray that until Christ comes again, this church's witness will always remain strong and clear because not only do the elders do their job well, but the congregations do their job well as they hold their leaders accountable. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder from your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.